No one remember? Holy Rooted in Jesus. Uh, the second one, the one that we're currently on right now. Yes, Consumed in His Mission. Uh, and we'll be entering into the third party responsible for His Bride, uh, I think, next week. So I wanted to introduce um, our speaker today. Y'all know, I think, well, most of us know him. If you're new, you don't know him. But if you're a member here, you know him. And actually, he is the husband of the woman who was just speaking here, um, Joe. So please uh, give him the welcome he deserves. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Thanks, Nancy. All right. That's about, yeah, I think you can end right there. I deserve just right there. So that was good. Or more, or more. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to say, um, yeah, we are closing out this part of our annual priorities where um, we are consumed with his mission. And I just want to say really quickly, Lauren Cabrera, who shared last week, it was so good. Um, Listen to it again. If you haven't heard it, definitely listen, for, for, listen to it for the first time. I can't, I don't see her now, but she was here earlier. Um, it was just so good. Just having a heart for um, what, what's on God's heart and cities, right? Like God loves the cities. God loves the Bay Area. Um, it, was, it was so good. Um, yeah, so this week, um, this past week, we went on a mini vacation. One of our traditions now is to spend the the holidays um, with Aaron's side of the family, um, mainly because they, they know how to cook the type of food that it requires. Um, it's really good. Um, and so, but then our car had a little bit of problem. We have a Prius. Um, really, I like it. Um, but some kind of issues inside to take it to the shop and then how to get a rental car. And while we're renting a car, um, the car they were supposed to have for us, they didn't have it. And I was like, oh, great. Um, I look over, and I see another car, and I was like, what about that car? Um, it was a Tesla, right? And I was like, and he was like, well, yeah, that one's available. So I was like, give me that one. Um, because I was calculating, like, okay, it's, here's the price, and the price you would have saved on gas for an SUV for a little bit more. Because it was also covered by our insurance. Um, anyway, we got the Tesla. And so, and then I, I texted Aaron a picture and said, um, slight change of plans. <laughs> I was like, they didn't have a car, so I got a Tesla. Um, and it's smooth. It's so smooth. If you, you know, like, because it doesn't have an engine, and the engine is what shakes with all the pistons and everything, combustion engine. engine. And so it, it has no engines. It just has a battery pack. And so it's so smooth. It's so smooth. And it, it accelerates so fast because that's like instant torque. There's no lag. You press on the accelerator, um, and there's, like, it, it, just, it just goes. And, like, Aaron was like, oh, my gosh. And I was like, we're only going 35. Right? But you go to 35 in like one second. That's why it feels so fast. But, but you know, we're only going 35 miles per hour. Um, it, was, I, it, it was so much fun. Like, I, I, I'm sure John Boyles knows what I'm talking about. Like, he, yeah, he does. Give me a thumbs up in the back. Okay. Um, the only thing, though, is that these things, um, you don't put gas in it, so it's great. You, sa- you save on gas money, but you have to charge them. You know, and you think about, like, charging your phone and things like that. And so when, when we, I, you put it into the navigation and it, routes all the superchargers that they've set up across the country. Um, and, and it takes like, like 90 minutes for a full charge. Um, I didn't fully know that when I rented the car. And so I was like, hey, we can like stretch our legs, um, which only takes about like one minute. Um, and for the rest of the 89 minutes, we can go for a walk. We can get something to eat. Um, and then we charged our car and we're driving. And it tells you how many miles are left on your battery pack and how many miles to your destination. And we had like... 35 miles to go, and it said like 50 miles or like 45 miles. So kind of cutting it close. 
Um, but as we're driving, I, I noticed something that, that the battery, the, the miles that it said we had on our battery were falling faster than the miles that it said on our destination to go. So it's like 40 miles on your battery, 34 miles to go, 38 miles on your battery, you know, and the, the miles to go still has not changed, right? And I'm looking at this being like, um, I'm trying to do the math and the rates and the ratios, and I'm like, I don't think we're going to make it. But I don't say anything, of course, because, you know, um, 95% of me was, like, really concerned for my family. Like, I don't want to be stranded on the side of the road, it, you know, and, and 5% was like, if we stop on the side of the road, there's no chance we will ever get a Tesla. And so I'm like, I'm like trying to make myself lighter by, I don't know how you did, like breathing more or, I don't know. I, and, and, and finally, like it gets to the point where I have to tell Aaron, like, Aaron, I don't know if we're going to make it because it says, it says five miles on the battery and it says like, you know, four miles to go, but the rate it's been dropping, I don't know if we're going to make it. And then she just gives me this look that she rarely gives me. Um, but it's the kind of look that, you know, I just know, like, I, I'm just like, I'm at your mercy. Like, it's totally my fault. We have a rule in our family um, that only one person can get on the crazy train, right? Like, but both of us can't get on it. And, like, 80% of the time, I beat her to the crazy train. I'm like, I'm on the crazy train, so you have to be mature and responsible until I get off. But listen, I was like... It's all yours. Like, step aboard. You can even drive it if you want. It's completely my fault. Um, and then I came up with a plan. I was like, wait, this thing is taking us to a Tesla supercharger, but there are other electrical vehicle charging stations set up. Um, so quick, download the app. And Erin's furiously trying to download it. And she's like, I've got to sign up for this. And I was like, sign up. And now it says, like, three miles to go to our destination and three miles left on our battery. She finds, um, she reroutes us and finds another electric vehicle charging station. That's not a Tesla supercharger station, but it works. We pull in. I walk up. With three miles left on our battery, crisis averted. Still a small chance in the future we might get a Tesla. And I I walk up to the machine. takes me a little bit to figure out, right? I figure it out. Um, And then I go to charge my car, and the charging port's different. Like, Tesla has their own proprietary, like, it's like if you went to another country and you try to use your MacBook charger, and you're like, the, why are the plugs different? Why are the plugs different? <laughs> and so I'm like, and then even though I know it won't fit, I still try to make it fit, right? Like, I can look at it and be like, there are three holes on this one and five holes on that one. No way it's going to fit, but, like, I, like, keep, like, doing this and, like, tapping them as if it'll, like, meld or something will come out and connect. It doesn't. And I'm like, okay, now I've got to tell Aaron that the charger doesn't fit. Um, so I, I go in in the car and I sit down. And she's like, what's going on? I'm like, um, the charger doesn't fit. And like, choo-choo. She's still on the train, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, but you know what? It says three miles to go and three miles on the battery. And I know that, like, you know, it's been, but I'm going to shut off all the auxiliary, I feel like I'm in a spaceship now, shut off auxiliary power, right? <laughs> Take it away from the engine, put in the force field or whatever. And so I'm like, we're going to turn off all the fans, dim the lights, like, you know, we're going we're gonna to do whatever it takes. Um, and so I was like, I think we can do it. And we're driving, and I'm like, barely trying to press the accelerator, so it's like not, I don't, I'm trying to conserve the energy. But I'm still looking at it, I'm like, oh, this is cutting it so close. And then it's dropping to two miles. You know, and it goes like two miles left on your battery, 2.4 miles to go to your destination, and it keeps dropping to one mile, 
1.2 miles to your destination. And then, it, and then it dropped to zero miles left on your battery. Um, and I was like, God, I hope they built this car for American drivers, like in North America, who ignore the light that goes on their gas cars. Like, they know that. Like, in Europe, I heard, like, when it's empty, it's empty. It's like, you're empty, you're done. Right? But, like, for some reason, like, people in the United States, like, it's empty, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to keep driving. And so, like, I've, I've, this is what I heard, that car builders in, like, Northern America, even though the light goes on, they're like, put another two gallons in there. Like, these, these you know, people from the North, they don't listen. And so I was praying that was the case. And as it dropped to zero miles per hour, it said 0.2 miles to go. And then we're driving up this like little hill, little incline. <laughs> I'm like, no! And then Aaron says, I see it! I see it! <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And then we get to the crest of the hill and then we start gliding down. And it's like, yes, I think we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And we pull into the supercharger station. The lights are shining. And almost, it looks like every lot is, parking spot is filled because it's the holidays. But there is one spot open. You have to reverse also to pull into these things. And so because the charging thing's in the back. Anyway, basically, I guess I'm telling you not to get a Tesla. So I finally pull in, connect it. We were able to connect. We were able to connect. Yes. I was so stressed out. It was so stressful. Like, I can't explain to you. Like, it was just, even reliving it now, it was a little stressful for me. And I do that all the time. But not with a Tesla, right? You see where I'm going? Like, I do it, I do it with my life. Right? I'm going to keep riding this thing. It says empty. I'm going to ignore all the warning signs. I'm not as patient as I normally am. That says empty, but I'm going to keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm not as disciplined as I am. I'm, I'm snacking more than I normally do. That's telling me I'm on empty, but I'm ignoring that. I'm just going to keep going. I'm missing my workouts. I'm just, I just want to escape to Netflix. That's telling me I'm on empty, but I just brush that aside. I just keep going. And hopefully I can make it to the next Sunday service or or amazing random encounter on the street where someone just comes up to me and says, the Lord told me to share this with you. Or whatever it is, I'm just waiting for that next supercharge. And then I'm going to ignore everything until I'm like at 2% or 1%. That's how I've been living my life. Well, I was. And I don't think that's how we can sustain being consumed by his mission. You know, what is his mission? In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them, and this is after he's faced the cross and he's resurrected. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Making disciples is the mission that we should all be on together. Making disciples. And it's a little bit different from conversion. I feel like in the culture that I grew up in, um, it's been more about conversion, which has been reduced to, um, and I'm not saying that God doesn't use this, it's not genuine experience, but like say this prayer with me right now, and now you are um, saved, right? And, and I don't think that's untrue, but when Jesus said, go make disciples, um, 
It looked a lot different then, and of course, things change over hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Things change. But it looked a lot different. It looked a lot different what it meant to become a follower of Jesus then. Even hundreds of years later, even 100 or 200 years ago, it looked a lot different when people said, I'm a follower of Jesus, than maybe what we were introduced to in the past 50 years. And in the early church, I'm talking about early, early church, like maybe uh, 100 or 200 years after Jesus had, had died and rose again, this is how you became a follower of the way, because they called it the way. The word Christianity wasn't really adopted yet. Um, you had to be sponsored by another believer. Like, you couldn't just be like, oh, here's a church. I'm going to walk in. What are they doing? Like, no. Like, you didn't even know where they met because it was oftentimes illegal. They were persecuted, right? You guys heard the stories about being thrown in the Colosseum or, like, they were thrown into jail. They were killed. Like, so it wasn't advertised where they met. And so they didn't just say, hey, like, hey, we meet here every week at 1.30, um, you had to be sponsored by someone. Someone came and said, I vouch for this person that they would be a good candidate. Or like, they are, they're like, they're genuinely seeking. They want to know the truth. And then after you were sponsored by another believer, you would meet with like the this, this spiritual leader or maybe the word was pastor. And that person would sit with you and have like a really deep and personal conversation asking you all sorts of personal questions about your business. Right? Nowadays, like, you could just show up and sit in the back for like months, years, and like no one even knows your name. Right? Like, it's a little different. I'm not saying the way they did it was 100% right. I'm just saying like it was different. Um, and then once you met with them, the leader was like, I feel like I sense this genuineness in you for the truth. You would have to meet with the leader in the church for like early morning teachings, like early in the morning. I don't know why it was early in the morning. I couldn't find out in the research I was doing. But it was early in the morning. You would meet with them, and you would sit through teachings. And this process would sometimes last up to three years. And I'm not saying it should take you three years to decide you want to follow Jesus or for people to, like, genuinely believe you are a follower of Jesus. I'm just saying that's how it was because the stakes were so high. It was, like, it was literally life and death. Discipleship. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, like, we are also being made into disciples, it's a lifelong process. Like, conversion can happen in a moment. In that moment, you're like, yes, Jesus, I don't know everything, I don't understand everything, but yes, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to follow you. That's a conversion experience. But discipleship is your life. Like, I'm still being discipled, right? Thank God, like, this is not the final thing, right? Because <laughs> I, I have so much more to still grow. I once heard that salvation is free. But discipleship will cost you everything. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. I used to be a children's pastor. Um, it's actually where I learned the most. Um, I remember one time sharing with my students, like, hey, who wants to follow Jesus? Right? And they're like, me. And I was like, you know, they're going to say me yes to anything. Right? And except for one girl. And she, she crossed her arms and she was like, uh-uh. She looked at the other kids, mm-mm. Like, nope. And I was like, yes, finally, a free thinker, right? She, and she was like nine, and the other kids were like seven, six, five, right? So she was like older, and, and I was like, can you tell me why? And she said, well, you said to follow Jesus, and the past couple weeks, you've been teaching us about how he died on the cross. So I don't want to follow him because you told us, he said, take up your cross and follow me. 
And I was like, you've been listening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Trust me. Like, if you saw where I was and where I, where I came, like, the kids were not listening. Um, <laughs> and I said, exactly. Like, we forget. Like, Jesus, his message was, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Like, discipleship. Right? It's going to cost us everything. Now, for those of us that really know, like, your everything for his everything is a great trade, right? <laughs> like, that's why the, the one, those of us who are sitting here following Jesus, even when it gets hard, it's because, like, I, it's going to cost me everything, but I'm going to get his everything. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Kumbaya because it's, been, it's just been something I've been thinking about, and as I've been thinking about it, it's been popping up in the news. There's also something in your brain that when you're aware of something, you're just, it just causes, I forget all the technical words for it, but someone's shaking their head vigorously. So you can go ask her, like all the scientific terms and the proof for it. But when, you, when you're thinking about something, there's something that's like happens in your brain where you just start to notice it more, right? So that's why like you've been looking at a certain car and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there it is, it's everywhere, right? Or whatever it is. So I've been thinking about Kumbaya, I've been noticing it. And and if you don't know Kumbaya, it's, 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 I think it's a song, right? And, and um, <clears throat> if you'll indulge me, I'm going to sing it. It's very short. It's like, it goes like, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Oh, Lord, Kumbaya. And as I've been singing, um, singing, as I've been thinking about Kumbaya, I've been reading it in the context of a lot of politics, um, where people will throw out the word kumbaya, and they said, well, that might work for you where everyone just sits in a circle and sings kumbaya, but that doesn't work in the real world. That's the context I've been hearing it in. And somewhere in my early childhood, I was flipping through a National Geographic magazine, so I actually learned what that song kumbaya means. And it's an African-American spiritual, and some of the origins are debated, but kumbaya actually means come by here. And it was a song sung of people who were in slavery, in oppression, crying out for a deliverer, saying, come by here, my Lord. Someone's praying, my Lord, come by here. Someone's crying, my Lord, come by here. Oh, Lord, come by here. And I feel like we've lost so much of the richness of our traditions of how they were born out of suffering and struggle and hope, hope for a deliverer. And to be a disciple of Jesus means to be a, just in a place of like, God, there is no hope without you. Like, there's no reason for hope unless things are dire. You know, he said, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And also, I just want to say very quickly, that's so scandalous because Judaism is a monotheistic religion, one God. So even when Jesus starts showing up and starts saying stuff like, I'm the Son of Man, and, and that's also a reference to things in Scripture, he starts to say things that, that wait, 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 are, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wait, 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 wait. We're a monotheistic religion. Now you're saying you and God? We, wait, we're worshiping you and God? But then Jesus also throws this in there. So there were some people like, okay, God the Father and you, Jesus. And then Jesus right here slips in, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're like, wait, 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 wait. You just keep changing it up. Teaching them to obey everything 
I've commanded you. So not only do we make converts, we make disciples, baptizing them, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was a time that actually Jesus being God was hotly debated in the church. Churches were splitting over that. I think most mainstream Christians now are like, God the Father, Jesus is also God. I think it's still debated in some circles how much the Holy Spirit is also God. Teaching them everything I have commanded you. Everything? Everything. Here are some of the spiritual disciplines that I think are helpful for us as we talk about how do we become consumed with his mission because his mission is teaching them everything he's commanded us. If you're thinking about spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices right now, like a disciple looked like their discipler, looked like their rabbi. The way they talked, the way they dressed, even the way they ate, right? I think I shared last time um, some disciples would sleep under the bed of their rabbi because they wanted to even like sleep the way their rabbi slept. Um, I think that's a little too much, but again, I can't judge them. Um, but if you're thinking about spiritual disciplines and practices, there are, there are some that you might know and some that you might already do. Like an easy one I'll throw out there is um, prayer, right? Like that's, if you're a Christian and you're practicing some kind of, or any kind of faith or religion, it probably invo- involves some kind of spiritual discipline or practice around prayer. Jesus prayed so differently that his disciples who grew up praying, who memorized prayers, who said prayers multiple times throughout the day, came up to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. Because when you pray, it's different. And then he taught them the Lord's Prayer, which I don't know if he meant it for to be memorized and then just repeated, but he taught them the Lord's Prayer, taught them how to pray. Um, another spiritual discipline or practice is forgiveness. That's not natural. It takes a lot of discipline, a lot of practice to forgive. Jesus also said, as I've, I mean, as I've forgiven you, you should forgive. Like, if you don't forgive, then it almost it says, I think it says, like, I won't forgive you. What? Fasting. I was talking with a leader I really respected, and they were asking me, um, I was going on a fast, because um, I was still single, I want to get married. No, I'm kidding. Um, that was, like, one of the things on the bottom of the list. You know, other things were, like, you know, holiness and things like that. Um, no, but really, it, it, I'm making it to a trip. No, really, there was a time where I was like, I need, God, I need more of you in my life, and so I went on this fast. There goes a jewel for my crown. But, but Jesus said, Jesus said, um, when you fast, when you fast, he didn't say if you fast. No, he said when you fast. Like he expected his disciples to fast. He said when you fast. Don't be like these people that announce it on podcasts like Joe, right? He's like, go into your room and do it in secret. And the father who sees in secret will reward in secret. He said when you fast. Um, it was also another interesting story when his disciples, who had learned how to pray, were trying to, like, cast out this unclean spirit from someone. And they're like, it's not coming out, Jesus. Um, and you taught us how to pray. And Jesus is like, oh, but, oh, this one. This one only comes out with fasting. And then he's like, get out. And it left. And I was like, where's the part, Jesus, where you fasted? I was like, oh, you must have been continually fasting. And it wasn't like, oh, wait, I'm going to come back in three days. I need to go and fast. No, he was like in a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Um, Another one is meditation is another spiritual practice. Um, 
Something I've heard is that um, the first thing that you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think about when you go to sleep shapes so much of who you are, right? My email shapes so much of who I am. Do I want that? I don't think so, right? It's been so hard for me to put my phone outside of my room and say, I'm going to spend five minutes, ten minutes, okay, five minutes, right? What, meditating on the scripture or just meditating being in your presence. There's so many, I'm just giving you a, a gamut. I'm going to give you maybe like five more. Sabbath is another one. Sabbath, right? It's actually a commandment in the Bible that I just disobeyed. And then I, even though I knew it was a commandment, I was like, oh my God, it's a commandment. He says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And I'm like, mm, no thanks. It's a commandment. Um, tithing, right? In the early church, I mean, it was like give 10%. A tithe is a tenth. But in the early church, they would go way above and beyond that. Um, confessing your sins, it's also a spiritual discipline and a practice. The Catholic Church kind of does it. Um, I went to Catholic school when I was younger, and there's like a red light that's like occupied. So don't go in there. And then the light goes off, I think, or there's a green light and a red light. I'm getting confused now. Um, and then there's like a priest in there. They're not, I don't think they're looking directly at you. Um, I didn't do it because I wasn't Catholic. Um, but then there's like a screen, but I think they can still look through it and see who you are. Um, even though they'll recognize your voice because, you know, parishes can only be so large. Um, but... In our Protestant or Pentecostal tradition, I think we've lost this spiritual discipline and practice of confessing our sins to each other. Or it looks like this. I've been struggling, man. Oh, you too? Let's pray. <laughs> like, that, that's what confessing sin looks like. Um, but we're not actually confessing much or anything. Um, God, will, God will forgive us if we confess our sins, but he says, confess your sins to one another and be healed. I think a lot of us have been forgiven, but we haven't been healed. Because we're not confessing to one another. God said, I will forgive you. Now, I want you to get your, heal your healing from each other. And a lot of that has to do with being healed of the shame, the fear, the guilt. Worship, praise, another spiritual discipline practice. I want to share something from Eugene Patterson. Um, we live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker, much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep essential need to be in a relationship with God is nurtured. And I know we crave so much in our culture being authentic that we're like, if I don't feel it, I don't want to do it. But even engaging in that act of I will be faithful to worship, I will lift my hands, I don't feel it, God, I'm dying on the inside, I'm dry, but I will still come here and lay myself as a sacrifice before you to join the church in the call to worship you, God. It nurtures your spirit. It nurtures your relationship with God. And there's such an honor in that that I think God sees when he sees that sacrifice that it costs you to praise and worship. Hospitality is another spiritual discipline. Did you know that the Roman Empire fell in large part to Christians showing hospitality? There were people in the king, in the, in the, there were, there were the, the, the priests and the, the religious leaders, of the spiritual leaders of, of the Roman religions that were like, we need to start doing what the Christians are doing. You know what they're doing? They're opening up their houses because the Romans built these highways and people would travel everywhere. And then where are they going to stop? 
right on the side of the road. If they have money, maybe an inn. The inns can get full. And these Christians would say, hey, you need a place to stay? Come in my house. I have a room set up for you. What's the charge? For free. Here's food for you. The room was often called a Christ room. Sometimes we call it a guest room. They set that up, and people would come to know. So many people were being converted, being discipled into a relationship with Jesus through just the act of hospitality and opening up their homes, that even the pagan religions were saying, we need to start doing the same thing. I'll share one more um, that's really challenging for me. Um, the practice of silence and solitude. Um, and maybe you've heard like a vow of silence. You think, oh, monks and nuns. Um, but I, I think especially in our digital age, more than ever, like notifications, right, whether they're haptic and they buzz on your hand or they make sounds or the screen comes up. Um, I was also reading another book where someone's talking about um, deep work and how, and I work with students, so I see this all the time. I see it in myself where it takes about 20 minutes of uninterrupted thinking to actually activate larger parts of your brain and creativity to actually get to the deeper work. And for me, I'm like, and every time you're interrupted, it resets that clock. You need 20 minutes of uninterrupted focus to actually access the greater parts of your brain. And then a notification, oh, really quick, oh, it's 4.13, okay. That clock starts over again. And I think kind of, Learning how to be silent in this digital age is a practice that we all need so much. So many of these disciplines and practices set us apart. They set us apart. I mean, the radical act of forgiveness. I remember in India one time, there were these missionaries, and they were not local missionaries. They had moved there. And one day, the people of that place had surrounded the missionary, the husband, the father, and their two boys in the car. And they lit the car on fire, and the fire killed the father and two boys. And I was watching the video of the wife, now widow, and the older sister, who were standing there. And they were just sharing their pain. And they were saying, as followers of Jesus... We have been taught to pray for those that persecute us, to love our enemies, and to forgive. And more people came to Jesus through that than the years that that family had spent. And I don't think it was separate. They had like sowed and they had built relationships. But as we obey Jesus, as we are discipled, and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us. How can we not change? How can people not change? How can cities not be changed? You know, Constantine, um, he was an emperor. And he had, I think, a vision or a dream about, like, a cross. And so he commanded all the soldiers, paint a cross on your shield. And they went into, vac uh, they went into battle and they had victory. And he said, okay. This Christianity thing seems to be helping me. And maybe it was a genuine conversion. I don't know. Um, a lot of people seem to think it was opportunistic and political. But again, I don't know. But he, he made Christianity the official religion. And there was no more persecution. Some believe that started to 
cause decline. I remember as a kid, um, some of the people in our church would go to China, and there's a lot of religious persecution over there, and it varies from province to province. And I remember my Sunday school pastor came back, and she was sharing with us, and um, she was sharing, like, there's so much persecution that there are people, there are, people are, are worried about people spying on them, people are thrown into prison, they're beaten, their property's taken away. And I'm just like, whoa, I'm glad I live in the USA. I was like, you know, eight or nine. And so I was thinking, like, we're going to pray, God, stop it. Stop those bad people from doing bad things to, to your people. Um, but my pastor told me this. We asked them, how can we pray for you? Should we pray, like, God, just, like, stop the persecution? Like, save your church. Deliver them. They said, no. No, because of persecution, Jesus is being proclaimed even more. It's spreading. They said, but pray that we have boldness. Pray that we're faithful. And pray that we don't forsake him, no matter what comes. It blew my mind. My other friend whose father went to China and then came back, this is what he shared. He said, I went to one of their, they called them underground meetings. And he said, it was the most passionate time of praise and worship I'd ever experienced. He's like, and you didn't hear a single sound because if you heard any noise, someone could report it and the government could come. He said, so during the praise, no one made a sound, but everyone sang. They moved their mouths to the words. They lifted their hands. He said, like the energy they put into the expression, since they couldn't make volume, they put it into their fingers, their face, their bodies to say, I'm expressing to you, God, my worship. Like, these rocks might be crying out, but God, so is my heart for my country, for my nation. Don't pray that the persecution ends. Pray that we have courage and that we are faithful to the end. He said, baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, baptism for me, I was like, I think my parents might have done it to me when I was young. It's like also like that thing of circumcision, like no choice, it just kind of happened. Um, baptism. I remember someone even asked me, like, do we even need to get baptized? And I was like, I think we do. And the answer is yes, because he commanded us to baptize. It's one of the first things that Jesus said, when you're a disciple of mine, be baptized. It's like the first thing he come. oh, you, I'm your Lord? Okay. Here's my command, be baptized. Like the first thing that he commands us, then we're like, optional. It's like, it's not the best way to start your relationship with Jesus. And there are places around the world where Christianity is still illegal. You're still persecuted, especially in countries where there's a strong Muslim faith there. And there are people who come to Jesus out of a Muslim family. And for them, they pay a high cost because you're not just leaving an ideology, you're leaving your community. Like everything is tied in with your faith, where you meet your family, where you go and hang out, like business, like everything is tied to your faith. It's to say like, I'm cutting myself off from the internet, I'm cutting up all my credit cards. I'm, people are like, how? no email. Like, people are like, how are you going to have a job? 
Like, for them to make that choice, and their family members, if they, hurt, if they know, you're, you're dead to me. There's a high cost. So there are people, our brothers and sisters, Muslim background believers is, is what some of them go by, MBB, who've made that decision to courageously, courageously follow Jesus, and there are priests and pastors there who will not baptize them. Because to baptize them means that the pastor or priest, anyone that baptizes someone else, you're gonna, that's your life. You will die. And there are people saying, please baptize me. Our Lord commands it. Please, I'm a disciple. Baptize me. In those parts of the world, you can say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And they might come. And if you recant and say, okay, I no longer follow Jesus, I spit on the cross. I, de- I renounce. I denounce Jesus. I deny him. You can come back to Islam. But if you've been baptized, you cannot come back. If you've been baptized and recant, it doesn't matter. You can't come back. That's how significantly other people see baptism. Jesus commands baptism. For the early believers, you got sponsored, you had an interview, you had to go to a lot of classes, and they were like, you know what, maybe it took up to three years, that person took one year, you took three, I don't know, but like, you know what, it's time for you to be baptized. Like, there was such like a sacredness and like a weight to that, and after you were baptized, you are fully welcomed in as a brother and a sister, and you can now also take communion. Communion, the bread, used to be wine, but sometimes grape juice. I want to read for you from John 6. Um, I'm going to skip a little ahead. But Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life, in verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All the Father gives me will, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I shall raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Earlier on in this chapter, what happens? He feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. So now it says the crowds are following him. They're like, did you hear about this guy? Five loaves, two fish, fed 5,000, as Lauren said last week, just men, not including women and children. might have been 10,000 people or more. And after that, seven baskets were left over. And so people are coming in for bread. The crowd is coming and following him for bread. And he said, you're coming to me because you want bread, but I'm the bread of life. I want to skip down a little bit later. In verse um, 47 or 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live in the Father, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, not just the crowd, but his own disciples, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Following Jesus is not an easy thing. Salvation is free. Discipleship costs you everything. There are things that he might say or do that offend your mind, that offend your heart, and then you turn away. Or maybe it's disappointment, and you turn away and say it's not worth it anymore. But there were other disciples. So Jesus said to the 12, these were the core disciples, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. If the praise team can come on up. The first Sunday is also the day where we take communion. And normally how it's done is um, we make a line and we come down and um, you get your bread, you dip it in the grape juice. I believe it's gluten-free. Yes, it is. Okay, so everyone can partake. Um, and then you sit there and I think you examine your heart and, and then you take it. Um, today I, I would like for us to take it together. Um, so when you come up and you dip it in and they say this is the body, this is the blood, I'd like for you to hold, hold on to it and just wait. Um, I'd like for us to take it together because this process of being a disciple is not one that we do alone. It can't be done alone. And there's some beautiful things about the West 
and our modern culture of seeing the individual person. But it veers too heavily sometimes on just the individual, and we lose on the aspect that we're actually part of a family as well. And yes, Jesus came for me, but he came for you. And he came for people that are not here. And we, he came for family members that have walked but then turned away because maybe there was an offense. He's come for people that maybe they came to a church and they didn't understand or they got hurt and they walked away. Or people who never even came to a church, never even really heard the true gospel, but saw things online or heard things from other people and said, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that. He came for them. So when we take communion, yes, we're taking it for us. But I also want us to stand in that place for them saying, God, we accept your mission to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything you have commanded us, and we can't do it without you, Jesus. So we take this bread that symbolizes your body because we need your life. We take this grape juice that symbolizes the blood you shed to forgive our sins because, God, we make so many mistakes to encourage us. So that there's no shame or condemnation. Jesus, we come right now in this space with you because you commanded it. If nothing else, if no feeling, I do it because I want to be faithful to you. Because you commanded it and I am your disciple. So as the praise team just begins to play, if the people can come forward with the bread, the body, and the blood... While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This happened during the Lord's Supper. At our church, we also practice Seder now. And there are four cups that are, that are drunk during this dinner. When he says, then he took a cup, this is the third cup in that dinner that he takes. He gives thanks, and he gives it to them. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What, he, what Jesus was saying is, this cup of restoration, this cup of when my people have been returned to me, I'm not going to drink that cup until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we drink from the cup. But he's saying, when all my people from all tribes and nations have been gathered, I will drink that cup with you in the kingdom. So Jesus, as we drink from this cup, yes, we thank you, God, for pouring out the blood that forgives our sins, but the covenant is like a marriage covenant, and more than just saying thank you for forgiving our sins, in addition to that, we are longing to be fully reunited, all of your people, your bride and your church, with you in your new kingdom. 
And as we were waiting in this Advent season, people waited and waited for your, for your birth. And we are waiting and waiting for your return. And we wait also for your presence in our lives this moment. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You can just make a line as you come down the center. Um, if you could remember to just hold on to it till the end, and we all have it, and we'll take it together.